The Future of Smart, a project of Grantmakers for Education, will explore ideas at the intersection of education, equity, and philanthropy that point us towards a radical re-envisioning of our education system. We'll hear from those working at the edge of what's possible and explore what it means to support transformative change for young people and their communities. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Future of Smart podcast, a project of Grantmakers for Education. My name is Olka Joshi Hansen, Chief Program Officer of Ed Funders, author of the award-winning book, The Future of Smart, and your host. For those new to this podcast, our choice of topics and guests is informed by a belief that different worldviews drive the creation of different kinds of systems. Our more modern Western worldview has birthed systems that we're coming to see were never designed to serve all people and communities equally. More holistic indigenous ways of understanding the world birth systems that are more intentional in how they honor, center, and serve human beings and our planet overall. The conventional approach to philanthropy that most of us engage with is very much grounded in a modern Cartesian-Newtonian way of seeing the world. It was birthed out of the unrestrained approach to capitalism that drives America's economy and tax code. In this approach, it's the missions and values of philanthropic organizations that drive funding decisions, funders who hold the power when it comes to identifying and evaluating the work of organizations that are trying to serve communities. In an effort to move towards more equitable grant making, funders today are exploring what it means to change discrete aspects of conventional grant craft. That means trying to reduce power imbalances between funders and partners, streamlining application and reporting requirements, awarding multi-year grants, or providing general operating support. However, for the most part, these tweaks happen without fundamentally shifting the inherent power dynamics embedded in the very structures of conventional philanthropy. Power and decision-making still rest with small groups of people, including boards and program staff, who set priorities, drive giving strategies, and usually have the final say when it comes to awarding dollars and determining metrics of success. So what would it look like to do philanthropy in a radically different way? Our guest today is Jamie Allison, Executive Director of the Walter and Elise Haas Fund, a family foundation headquartered in San Francisco. Jamie is only the third Executive Director over the foundation's 70-year history, and she describes her six-year tenure as coinciding with a lot of firsts for the organization. One of the most significant firsts is the journey the foundation has been on to deeply interrogate what it means to be, as Jamie phrases it, in right relationship with its work in the community. Right relationship. It's a simple phrase, but as Jamie unpacks it, we see that it encompasses a lot. It has required unlearning ways of thinking, grappling with the uncertainties that come with constructing a new sense of identity within the work and upending ways of operating. These shifts have been real and necessary for everyone involved in the Foundation's orbit. Join me for a conversation with Jamie about what centering the idea of right relationship has meant for the Foundation's trustees, its staff, and its nonprofit partners, and some of the lessons that they've learned along the way. Welcome, Jamie. Thanks so much for joining me today. I'm thrilled to be here. So I want to start where we always start on this podcast. Our personal stories, our personal journeys always shape the things that we decide to put our time and passion into. So tell us a little bit about your 
kind of personal journey as a student into the professional world and how it shapes the kind of way that you spend your time today? Oh my gosh, I love this question. Thank you so much. I was a young person who absolutely loved school, and I still think of myself as a lifelong learner. And I think I've mentioned this to you before. Both of my parents are deceased. There are times now as an adult, I miss them every day, but there are questions that I want to ask them about decisions they made about how they were going to raise me. And one of the decisions that they made was to send me to an independent school. This is interesting to me because my mother worked for the public school system. My mother went to public schools. My father went to public schools. And even working in the public school system, my parents decided to send me to a private independent school. The independent school they sent me to, though, was a school that was founded by and predominantly attended by all Black families, all Black children. And even though the school wasn't racially diverse, it was absolutely diverse in terms of academic background, religious practice. And also there were a number of immigrant students in the school. Almost all of my teachers were from the Caribbean. And so I went to this K-8 school where every day I saw teachers and students and parents um, that looked like me that had some similarities and backgrounds, but were also really different from me. And so it was a very rich learning environment from a social perspective and also with very rigorous academics. After attending that K-8 school, I then went to a predominantly white independent school of my choosing. I chose that school. My parents gave me the opportunity to choose a school. It was a very different environment, but again, one that I found to be nurturing and one that had rigorous um, academics. So I still wish I could talk to my parents Mm -hmm. about those decisions and how how that played out. And to the portion of your question that's about how has that impacted what I do now, particularly in that K-8 school, I went to school every day in an environment uh, in which I knew that my teachers cared about me, that every adult uh, in the school cared about me, and that families of my friends and peers also cared about me. I went to a school where every day um, I was told I was brilliant, every day Uh, Someone saw my potential and invested in my potential. And I think that had a really big influence on how, on my sense of self and how I view the world. And today, the work that I do is to ensure that every young person has that same or at least a similar experience where they know that they are loved, they are cared for, they are respected, that they have potential, and that the adults around them are going to do everything they can to invest in that potential. Hmm. That's lovely. And I remember asking you when we first spoke, did you notice a difference being in the K-8 environment that you were in, where it was primarily teachers of color, where it was other Black students and families, versus your high school that was all white? Did you notice a difference in how you were treated or the experience that you had or the experience you had of your own education? I'm pleased to report that I don't recall any traumatic experiences. I don't recall being treated differently. I don't recall being discriminated against or feeling like I didn't belong. But I will say that part of that is about how I showed up in that environment after being in a K to eight situation where I was well-loved and invested in and also well-educated 
when I went to the school that was predominantly white children, there were maybe three other high school, three other black high schoolers there at the school. I went there knowing who I was. I went there knowing that I was bright, that I was talented, that I was going to perform well. I went there knowing that post-secondary education, college was in my future. So it is possible that there could have been someone Mm -hmm. or even multiple people in that school who maybe looked at me differently or had thoughts about me that where they questioned, should I be there? Could I really perform? It's possible that some people had those thoughts, but I never felt it because I wasn't insecure. I was very secure in in who I was. And I had a very pleasant, positive, fun, silly, engaging high school experience. It's so important, right? We so often don't think about that as one of the outcomes that we should care about when it comes to young people's education, that they walk away and walk into any situation knowing who they are and that they are of value and deserve to be treated as such. And when you walk into environments that way, that actually shapes in really critical ways, everything that comes after. So thanks for sharing I think that's true. And that certainly carries over into adulthood. I was, I regularly in my position, I'm a Black woman of relative youth, still leading a family foundation in San Francisco. And I absolutely walk into rooms and folks treat me like I'm not supposed to be there. They'll ask me why I'm there. People will come to offices at the Walter and Elise House Fund and ask me what my role is. You didn't look at the website. Yeah, and those slights <laughs> are terrible when they happen. But again, because I am secure in who I am and I know that I belong there in any room, really, and at any table, it doesn't, it's annoying to me, but mostly it's, oh, thank you for teaching me who you are. Mm-hmm. Maybe if you're lucky, you'll get to learn who I am. Love it. So what was your journey to philanthropy? What happened between your graduation from high school and where you are now at the Walter and Elise House Fund? Now I'm going to have to take back something I said earlier. I said I was a Black woman of relative youth, but this is when I age myself in our conversation. So when I was coming of professional age, we didn't talk about philanthropy in the news media in the way that we do now. There were no television shows called Loot. We didn't talk about Mackenzie Scott or Bill Gates or Melinda French Gates in the news every day in the way that we do now. So when I was coming of professional age, I didn't actually know that institutional philanthropy offered professional careers. I didn't know that institutional philanthropy existed. I knew that personal philanthropy existed. I grew up in a household that was very much dedicated to serving the community. I volunteered with my family, uh, made contributions, financial contributions to organizations and causes that it cared about. But I didn't know that there were institutions that did that at a large scale. When I finished high school, I did go to undergrad. Of course, I was going to undergrad. And then I went to Peace Corps after Mm -hmm. undergrad. And when I came back from Peace Corps, wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. I was was hosting at a restaurant in an, for in the interim period as I figured out what I wanted to do. I always knew that I was going to do something that was values-based, mission-based, something that was community-oriented. And I ended up working in local government in my hometown of Chattanooga, Tennessee. And my career really blossomed from there and ended up working in philanthropy because while I was working in local government, 
I received a call from a recruiter that was recruiting for a foundation role, and they were particularly interested in people who had relationships and understood how government worked because Mm -hmm. it was a foundation that was interested in building more public-private partnerships. That's great. And so now you are at the House Fund. Tell us a little bit about the evolution of the foundation and its work. Wow. The Walter and Elise Haas Fund is headquartered in San Francisco. It is a 70-year-old family foundation. So the board is completely comprised of family member trustees. And in the 70 years of the foundation's existence, I am only the third executive director. That's wow. three in 70 years. Just wow. want to give everybody a moment to do that little bit of math. And I am the first woman of color to lead the foundation, the first person of color, the first Black person. And I might also be the first person to lead the fund who isn't Jewish. The family, the family, the founders of the organization have Jewish roots. So a lot of firsts in my tenure. I've been there now for almost six years, and it has been quite a journey. It's a 70-year-old foundation that has operated in fairly conventional ways. By conventional, I mean it's a foundation that has program officers and program associates and organized its work on a docket schedule of quarterly board meetings and reading proposals and doing write-ups and board meetings being filled with transactions of grant-by-grant approvals and budget approvals. And we have really turned a lot of that upside down. We spend most of our board meeting time in shared learning conversations between the staff and the board. We no longer use the term program officer for our program staff. We say program lead. We decided that officer wasn't right for us as we get closer to community and want to be in right relationship with community as we call it. We don't show up as officers. That's not our orientation to the work. We're not there to point out wrongdoing. We're not there to punish. We're not there to monitor. We are there to be supportive partners, and we really want to be in trust-based partnership with, with our grantees. And so in order to do that, we had to change a lot about how the foundation operates. And for us now, when we say, when, we're, when we think about what do we what do we need to do to be most effective? Our answer, our shorthand answer to that is that we want to fund our nonprofit partners to win. And in order to do that, we had to make a lot of changes to how we operate, including making larger grants and making them for larger for or a longer time period. Mm-hmm. One of the big initiatives that we just started is something called the Endeavor Fund. It is focused on closing the gender and racial wealth gap. And for us, it's our first attempt at really bringing together all of the shifts that the fund has made. In its 70-year history, our grant size has hovered beneath $50,000. The Endeavor Fund grants are $500,000 each. And we made those commitments for seven years. So each organization will get a total of $3.5 million because we recognize that one of the things we have to do to support our nonprofit partners to win for their missions is that they have to be resourced to win for their missions. They have to have sufficient resources to invest in staff talent 
and staff retention and benefits and opportunities for professional development and advancement within the organization. They have to be able to innovate and test out new areas of work without fear of a funder getting upset when something doesn't work and pulling the money. And so this is a really big shift in how the foundation has worked in the past. So I want to back up a little bit before we go and dig a little bit deeper into the Endeavor Fund, but what was the impetus for that shift? Because it sounds like for a really long time, it was very conventional and it sounds like it's been under your tenure as CEO that the shift has been made, but what led up to it? There are a lot of entry points to the change journey. In some ways, it has to do with 2020 and COVID and the ways in which the Walter and Elise Haas Fund responded during COVID. It has to do with the racial justice protest of 2020 and the questions we started to ask ourselves about how we wanted to show up in our community in relationship with the racial or in relation to the racial justice protests. In some ways, it started before 2020. In some ways, this these shifts began in 2018. I joined the foundation in 2018 as executive director. And at that point, there was a shift in executive leadership. 2018 also marks the beginning of a generational shift on the board from third generation board members to fourth generation board members. So there were a number of internal inflection points as well as external inflection points that created an opportunity for us to be introspective, think about the work of the foundation and why we were doing it and how we were doing it. And all of those, the questions that we were asking ourselves and what we were seeing in the community and on the news helped us recognize that there were ways that we wanted to show up differently in our community. Would you be willing to share some of those questions? Just because I'm aware that some of the folks listening are funders and, and inside of their organizations, what were some of the questions that prompted the kind of reflection that ended up leading in this direction? One of the big questions I think is something we ask ourselves in philanthropy all the time. We just decided we were going to answer the question differently. And one of the, one of the big questions was, How can we be most effective? If we care about our community, what do we need to do to be as effective as possible? And when we started to unpack that, one of the things that became clear was that the Walter and Elise Haas Fund, and I would argue any philanthropy, we cannot do our work without our nonprofit partners. To use the language from COVID, there are essential workers, like there are essential partners, nonprofits are. And so if we are not in partnership with nonprofits, in relationship with nonprofits and the people who fuel nonprofits, if we're not in right relationship with them, if we're not doing things that help them advance their mission, then we are not being effective. Mm -hmm. And so then we started to pay really close attention. What are the things that our nonprofit partners are saying either to us directly or through surveys in the field that what are they telling us that create barriers for their work? They've been very clear about this. (laughs) There's no guesswork in this. Nonprofits have been very clear. They will say, 
annual grant cycles. So we're constantly in this cycle of, oh my gosh, are you going to renew? Are you going to renew? We have to write this report. We have to write a proposal. That those things are burdensome and extractive. We know that there are high turnover rates in nonprofit organizations because there is chronic income insufficiency within the sector. That is a barrier to the impact we want to see in community. We know that capital and displacement are reasons in our communities that um, the nonprofits that we depend on to feed us, educate us, create enriching opportunities for us, provide workforce development. If they don't have appropriate facilities to do the work, if they don't have stable staffs to do the work, if they don't have opportunities to do their own innovation and R&D and testing and experiments, how can we then at the end of the year say, Oh, you really missed the mark on these grant objectives. I don't know if I can re- if I can renew again. We listen. We listen to the nonprofit community say foundations create barriers to our progress. And so then we started to look at our own practices to say, how are we contributing to the nonprofit starvation cycle? How are we mm-hmm. contributing to the lack of innovation? How are we contributing to nonprofit workers not having stable lives, having to live far away from the communities they serve because they can't live in the communities where they work? How can we expect workers to create vibrant, thriving communities for us when they can't do that in their own households. And when we started to ask ourselves those questions, then you know we decided that our work was to look at how we do our work because how we engage matters and has an impact on what ultimately nonprofits are able to do and the impact that they have on the community. It's interesting because an underlying thing and what I'm hearing is you started to define your impact by the success of your partners and saying, if we want to succeed, they have to succeed. And what do they need to succeed? And how are we standing in the way of that? I know you're thinking a lot along with your principals and your board about how that has gone, what you have learned. It wasn't easy, I assume. Where were some of the sticking points and the sort of unintended consequences of some of the shifts that you started to need to make as a result of your answers to those questions? I'm glad that you phrased this question as sticking points and unintended consequences. Because I just want to quickly say that a sticking point doesn't mean that something isn't worth doing and that change is hard on purpose. If it were easy, more of us would engage in it. It is really difficult. And one of the things I think we've done really well at the Walter and Elise Haas Fund is that we have, again, developed a trust-based partnership between the trustees and myself as executive director and extended to the staff and that we have agreed that we will be on a learning journey and that we are experimenting with change and that the goal is to learn and to do our best work. And when you're in a shared learning relationship, there's a lot of room for explanation and there's no need to be judgmental. There's no fear about, oh, if I don't, if this grantee, if this initiative isn't 100% successful by all measures, the world is going to fall apart. And so one of the first things we had to do was just establish that learning was one of the goals and that experimentation would be one of the goals. And so we check for alignment 
all of the time and making sure that staff and trustees are aligned in the direction that we're moving. I think one of the things that can happen in foundations when staff has an idea of a big change it wants to make, shows up in the boardroom with a perfect PowerPoint and a perfectly crafted and persuasive memo, and then trustees say no and and staff gets upset. But the reason trustees say no is not because the ideas aren't good, is that they haven't been on the same learning journey as the staff. You showed them a perfectly polished product that they don't know where it came from. They don't know its origin story. It doesn't, they don't know how you made the decisions and the assumptions, and they don't understand how you got to that endpoint. And one of the things we've gotten really good at doing is being in partnership with trustees. And we are learning together, growing together, making decisions together. And so by the time we're in the boardroom for a big decision, let's commit $24.5 million to closing the gender and racial wealth gap, which is the largest funding that the foundation has ever put out at one time. Trustees were ready to do it. In fact, trustees were almost like, wait, we haven't done it yet. <laughs> because <laughs> We've been talking about this for a while. <laughs> <laughs> like, wait, we haven't made this decision already? So it was almost, I won't say it was a no-brainer by the end, but they were convinced because they had been on the same learning journey as the staff. And I'm pretty sure that if we just walked into them one day and said, hey, trustees, we want to make seven-year grants at $500,000 a year to this cohort of grantees, they would have said no. And there were definitely times in the learning process that talking about the seven-year commitments, trustees were like, whoa, we've never done this before. What happens if there's mistakes? What happens if there's a grantee that we think is was underperforming? And we could talk through what all of that really meant because as we are changing our behaviors, they had in their mind the models of the past that were mm. a more punitive, that were about perform or else. And it's like, wait, let's remember our values. Like we spent a lot of time grounding ourselves in values. Let's remember our little tagline, internal only, our little tagline of fund nonprofits to win. And so again, when it came time to actually make the recommendations to them, they cheered after the unanimous vote to make these grants. And so a lot of patients is required and the willingness to truly engage and partner with staff and trustees to make good big moves like this. And then your question about unintended consequences, the one that's front of mind for me right now that I've been talking with staff and trustees about is that when you change as a foundation, now that we have changed our approach to be less about, or it's not actually at all about grant by grant approval. So we used to be a foundation that staff would prepare the quarterly docket. Each grant recommendation would have a two-page write-up and the program officer, which we use that language at the time, would spend a little time introducing each one and then trustees would discuss it and then they would say yes or no. We don't do that anymore because now what we do is learn about the context in which we're working and we learn, we bring lessons from our grantees to the boardroom now. So there's very little transaction that happens in board meetings. But And what I'm learning, this is back to the unintended consequences, is that the board's role has changed, which they 
fully embrace, but staff roles are changing too. In philanthropy, we work in a field where program teams, for example, are accustomed to reading proposals, reading reports, deciding which organizations they want to recommend. They write a two-page memo. We edit it. It goes in the docket. You represent what you wrote in the meeting. Trustees say yes or no, and then repeat that cycle over and over again. Now, Every docket is created from scratch. We can't templatize everything we do because every meeting is to contextualize something we are learning or something we want to learn. So we can't go in with the two-page memo, the two-page write-up template anymore. We don't do grant-by-grant recommendations to trustees anymore. So I hate to say it, but like the rote, repeat, templatized way of working that we used to have doesn't exist anymore. Also, we are serious about being in right relationship with community and elevating community voice in our work and ensuring that the work we do reflects what the community and what nonprofit leaders say are most important to them. That means as staff, we got to spend more time with our partners. We have to spend more time in community. We have to spend more time convening. We have to spend more time talking with our grantee partners about what they need beyond the grant dollars and how we can support their work beyond the grant dollar. And that's all amazing and wonderful work and not the jobs that everybody on the team applied for and got. And so we have to spend a lot of time recalibrating. And we did an exercise where we talked through what were our tasks and responsibilities under this more conventional model and what are we being called upon to do now? Because the the terms of or the expectations of employment at the Walter and Lee's House Fund have changed. And in the same way that board and staff have to be in alignment, staff and staff, (laughs) have to be in alignment with the ways we're called upon to work now. Communications plays a much bigger role in our work now than it ever did before. So there are all kinds of things that have changed in the staff role, and we're being intentional about calling attention to those things and talking about the tensions that exist now that the roles have changed so much. So not only did the titles change, um, the work for particularly for program roles changed too, but that also changed the work of the grants manager. It also changed the work for the executive associate and for the grants associate. Like it changed everyone's work. And now that we're working in such different ways. There's a power dynamic as well, right? Who holds the power? Where does the power sit? There's a cachet to being in philanthropy, to having certain roles. And when you are trying to right size or be in right relationship with, that fundamentally means that power moves from where it may have sat before into a different place. And that can't be easy. It is to me the heart of equity, right? It's a way of being in the work. It's not a set of like new systems you put in place or a new set of kind of tick boxes. And so to to be clear for folks listening, what was the timeline for this? Just to be realistic, right? To go start having the conversations, think differently. Was this one year? Was it two years, three years-ish? In the same way I say that there's lots of entry points to the change journey, you could say Uh it was 2020, you could say it was 2018. For the Endeavor Fund initiative, that's the seven-year grants at $500,000 a year, 
we tend to say that took 18 months. That was 18 months of staff and board learning together and then coming to conclusions together at the end of that learning journey to say, it's the Endeavor Fund. It's it's five hundred thousand dollars a year. It's seven to seven years. We so as part of that eighteen month trajectory in September of twenty twenty two, we adopted a set of what we call ideological shifts, and those shifts included what we call moving from silos to integration, moving from contributions to commitment, and moving from symptoms to system solutions, and so. If these are the three shifts we're making and how we're going to approach our work, it means what it means what's going to come out on the other side is much different. And mm-hmm. so that journey took us about 18 months. But again, one could say that journey started in 2019 when I started to work with trustees to think about how to make the founder's vision for the foundation more contemporary and relevant to our times. It was also in 2019 that I began working with trustees to articulate and establish values for the foundation. So in this seven year, I want to talk a little bit more about the Endeavor Fund. So it's seven years, $500,000 a year, and it's not going to be a tell us what you did this year, you met the goals, you didn't. So what are you looking at? What are the ways in which you and your partners are going to be thinking about their learning, their progress, the adjustments they need to make? What does that process now look like that you've made the commitment? So I'll start my response to this question by going back to your previous question uh, when I started to talk about changing staff roles. So we have a new role at the fund that we never had before, and the role is called a strategist for justice, equity, and learning. And the person who holds that role, one of her, one of the things she does within the Endeavor Fund is that she and the learning team, there are two of them on the learning team, had in-depth meetings with each of the Endeavor Fund cohort members, each grantee, to establish a learning framework and a learning agenda. And in that learning agenda, we are taking our cues from what each organization says it wants to learn. We take our cues from accepting what goals that organization says it has. And there's no written reports required during the seven years, but the commitment which all of the grantees consented to do is that they would have a conversation, an annual conversation with the learning team to look back at the goals that they shared in the previous year. And then as a full team commitment, it's not like we only talk to the organizations once a year, then we also have a commitment to the organizations for things that we will do with them throughout the year. So for example, there will be probably at least one convening of the cohort each year. They're going to have a convening. We're organizing a convening for them this year in November. We expect that will be an annual occurrence and that there will be programming related to it as well as learning and general check-ins that happen during that time. Grantees have asked us for things to be more present in their work. So for example, as part of the diligence that the staff did 
for the Endeavor Fund grantees. There were no proposals required. Staff did all the work to learn what we needed to learn. And as part of that, the director of administration at the Walter and Elise Haas Fund completed the financial diligence on each of the organizations using publicly available information. And then presented that information to each organization to say, is this an accurate picture of your financial health, your status? Fill in blanks where I have maybe missed something. Tell me what I tell me what I don't know. And in every case, the recipient organization, the grantee organization was like, wow, this is more thorough analysis than we ever do of our own financials. Will you keep doing this for us? Because we want to share this with our board. Like, this is really great. And so that's one of the commitments that we've made, that any organization in the cohort that wants us to continue to do this level of financial analysis, that we will do it. So when we talk about being in right relationship, when we talk about being in a trust-based partnership, yes, we're talking about general operating support grants. Yes, we're talking about multi-year grants. But we're also talking about mutuality. We're also talking about interdependence. Like we're talking about a real relationship that gets at the heart of what you just described is like the power dynamics and the power hoarding and the hierarchy that can happen in relationships between, or I'll say interactions between foundations and nonprofits. We acknowledge the power that the foundation holds. And at every turn, we're trying to do everything we can to Again, just be in right relationship and to remove as much, to transition and transfer as much of the power that we think of ourselves as having to transition that power, whether that be human capital resources in the form of the administrator at the Walter and Lee's Haas Fund, whether that be making as large a grant as possible so that the organization has financial flexibility and sustainability. We're trying to transfer as much of our privilege, as much of our flexibility to the nonprofit organizations so that they can do their best work. And I also heard something that sounded like using the power that you have to actually support them, right, in the work that they want to do versus wielding the power for simply accountability. And it's a subtle shift, but a big one. So you had mentioned that your partners are very transparent with you about what they think. So you can either tell me what you have learned or heard from them, or what if I were to ask them what they would say, but this couldn't have been easy for them either. Our nonprofit sector has been taught to behave in certain ways because there are certain dynamics with funders. So what was this like on their end to learn to be in this different relationship with you. Yeah. So, you know, the field of philanthropy is really conditioned. Condition's uh, a good word. <laughs> conditioned <laughs> nonprofit leaders to behave in certain ways. And it's been, it's sad too, but it's also been funny in these engagements because often our Endeavor Fund grantees they don't believe us, but not not in a way oh, we think they're lying to them, but they're just, they've not encountered a foundation that's working in this way before often. When we started to talk about the learning framework and adopting their goals, the organization would say some version of, no, tell us what you really want. Tell us what we could do or not do that would make you disappointed and rethink renewing the grant next. And so, no, that's not that's not what's that's not what's happening here. And so the con- the conditioning is is strong, and their their organizations are like, no, we'll do a written report anyway. And so you don't 
have to. If you want to send us something that you have prepared for another funder, like we want it, like we want all the information you want to share with us, but it is not required. Like they were surprised when it was grant agreement time that we also were making pledges to them of not just the dollars. And they were like, no, tell us how we can support you too. Like we we have a responsibility to uphold in this relationship as well. So mostly we just get a, a lot of questions of folks that say, oh my gosh, is this real? And is there some surprise or penalty that's going to come later? Organizations have been frank with us about not making any requirements of them that will make them feel overburdened. And so we're going to try not to, we're not going to convene too much. (laughs) We're not going to have too many learning meetings. And so we appreciate it. Folks being honest to say, yeah, we're really interested in the seven-year grant and don't make us jump through a lot of hoops. As you're thinking about the work that you're doing, so certainly you're engaging with your nonprofit partners. I'm curious, are you in conversations with other funders, especially in your region, about what you're doing? Do you have hopes for how you as a fund modeling this and modeling this behavior might have ripple effects on the ecosystem as a whole? And what would that look like for you if you could imagine beyond your wildest dreams what this could be? Back to trade-offs for a moment. One of the trade-offs in the Endeavor Fund context is that as the fund made real its aspirational shift of moving from contributions to commitments, to us, we see that as like the one-year grant of modest size to making a larger grant and longer-term commitment to a nonprofit partner, it means that we have many fewer grantees than Mm. we had in the past. And in many cases, I had one-on-one grant, one-on-one conversations with grantees that were being transitioned out of the foundation. And one of the things that former grantees asked us to do, and this has been echoed by current grantees that are in Endeavor Fund, but those former grantees would say, wow, I wish I, I were going to be part of the Endeavor Fund cohort, but I'm happy that this is happening because we want more funders to behave in this way in terms of the unrestricted grant, the long-term grant period, and the size. And it might not be us this time, but maybe it'll be us next time. And if you, Walter and Elise Haas Fund, will go out and talk to your funder peers about what you're doing and other funders start to adopt all or some of these approaches, we believe the nonprofit sector will be better off. And Mm -hmm. so one of the commitments we've made at the fund is that we will spend time with our peers, either in situations like this, like your podcast or at conferences, and also just one-on-one privately talking about the shifts that we've made to encourage others. So you don't have to do exactly what we're doing, but just start asking yourselves the questions about your purpose and how you can be most effective and ways you can reduce the barriers to your nonprofit partner's progress. We're committed to being in those conversations with our peers in hopes that more will really heed what the nonprofit community has been telling us about 
general operating support, multi-year grants, less extractive practices, and generally treating organizations and its leaders with more dignity, with more respect, and recognizing their expertise and not doing things that really keep them from doing their best work. I'm so curious. I hope we'll have a chance to talk in a couple of years because I think in the sector, what we are seeing is I think there's a almost a bimodal distribution. There are folks who are really leaning into this work and willing to do it. And then we're seeing and we're hearing from nonprofit partners that some of the commitments that were made in 2020, 2021 are now being pulled back on. And so I'll be really curious about what the philanthropic landscape looks like and really, A, appreciate your grantees being so generous, right, in how they frame that. We're sorry not to be part of it, but we're so excited for those who are, and we hope we'll be next. And also in urging you to think about what this could mean for the sector as a whole. I wanted to to pivot just a little bit. When within your education portfolio, you all had launched something called the Learning Lab, and it was an effort to work towards collective change making by and I'm quoting, taking as a given youth development principles, which I love. And I'd love it if you could just unpack a little bit about what you mean by that for folks who might not be familiar, but would love to talk a little bit about the Learning Lab and what you were aiming to do and what you learned from that process. Much of the motivation behind the work I do in philanthropy is really thinking about young people and the opportunities I want them to have, to grow, make mistakes, learn, explore, and figure out who they want to be. And part of that is because of my own experience, which we started to talk about at the beginning of the call, and having worked in youth development. So those ideas in youth development is that young people are already leaders and that they should be shaping their environments. Like I'm bringing that mindset to the Walter and Elise Haas Fund. And the person who leads the learning labs and who leads the education work, which is now embedded within our economic well-being portfolio, when we were hiring for that position, I wanted someone who would be able to do this kind of experimental learning lab approach and someone who really understood young people. So the person who oversees this work, Puiling, has a youth development background. And in our interview, She actually reminded me recently of this, that when she was interviewing for the role, I said to her, I want young people to run the Walter and Lee's House Fund. I want young people on staff. I want them here telling us what to do because all of our work has to have a future orientation. Let's be honest, like all the work we're doing, like yes, we're doing it for ourselves for sure, but we're absolutely doing it for young people and so that they have the best chance at having a bright future as possible. And it's been a long time since I've been a young person. And if my work is really for young people, then young people should be guiding that work. And so we've done that in a couple of ways. One is through the learning labs, which is in partnership with adults. And then we also have young people on our grant making team called Bay Fellows. And the learning labs actually launched during COVID. And so we learned so much through that experience. And because of young people's participation, we were led to do things in our COVID response grant making that we would not have done otherwise. Hmm. Young people talked about the stress and the anxiety they felt as they watched their parents struggle with either losing jobs or having hours cut back and wondering how they were going to support 
their families, and that this was taking a toll on them emotionally. It was taking a toll on them emotionally to be separated from their peers. It was taking a toll on them emotionally to be separated from their teachers and other adults in their lives that they know care about them. And so they said that what they wanted was the fund to invest in mental health, community-based mental health supports. We would have never supported Hmm. mental health as part of our COVID response if young people hadn't said that's what was important to them. Like we did typical adult things. We focused on, I mean, which were also good things, but like we did food banks and affordable housing and shelters. We did the things that it was clear to do for adults. But what young people wanted was mental health supports. And Hmm. that has really stuck with me that our decisions are different when we take our cues for young people. And that's also impacted how we approach the portion of our work that's related to education grant making is that we support youth serving organizations that are primarily working in out of school time to provide young people with the experiential life skills that will help them in school and in life. So we support an organization called the Center for Young Women's Development that teaches workforce and taxes and provides mental health support and a range of things that young people really want to know about, but doesn't happen within the school day. What did you learn about what it takes to bring adults and young people together in productive ways? Because I think we're hearing from a lot of our members, for example, and funders, that they want to do that, and yet not not unlike the conversation we just had about funders and grantees. One, I think we have a lot of like verbiage around believing in the capability of young people. I'm not actually sure we really believe it. So when we bring young people and adults together, the power dynamic can be strange. So what did you learn about what it takes to bring those two groups together to be equals and co-equals as opposed to immediately deferring so much to young people versus not deferring enough? Yeah, I think you're definitely right about that. Young people are definitely up to the task. Young people are flexible and adaptable. They're ready to be in any room and do anything that they're called upon to do. Adults were harder. And so I'll personalize this. I'll tell a story about a moment when Jamie was like, what is happening? And it's not actually about learning labs. It's about your upcoming conference. So we have a conference session, plug for the conference. Yeah, We have a conference session in partnership with the Skillman Foundation, which also has youth grant makers on its team. And I wanted to have a conversation with the young people about business travel. Because I thought, oh, I don't know if this is a group of young people who've ever traveled for business before. And so there are certain norms about attire and behavior. And I was like, we need a, we're going to need a handbook. We're going to need. And then I talked to the young people and then I felt stupid. <laughs> it's like, oh my gosh, this is- They're like, yeah, we got this. <laughs> Like, Jamie, this is all you. Just calm, calm down. Like, young people are fine. Like, they they know. They, they also want to represent themselves well. Right. They want to represent themselves well, just like I do. Full stop. And so I think as adults, when we're in the room with young people and we all we need to do to be respectful of their leadership is just remember, they want the same thing I want. They might use slightly different words. They have different cultural references, but 
we are working towards the same goal. Mm -hmm. And I have to, in those moments that I'm spiraling out, I have to just reel myself back in. And if I can do it, then I know that other adults can do it as well. One of the ways though, that I did find that young people and adults that were participating in the learning lab were similar is that in community, unfortunately, we've been conditioned to expect so little that the Walter and Lee's Husband team, again, the staff member leading this pre-ling would often have to remind the group to think bigger. In the context of thinking about awarding grants, young people and adults too would kind of default to, oh, if we had $10,000, maybe we could have a little community event and get a little bit of catering. And it's, no, think bigger than that. <laughs> think, tell us what you really want. Don't tell us what you think you can get. Don't tell us what you think might seem fair. Don't tell us mm-hmm. what you think might be easy. Tell us the big thing that you want and let's figure out how to fund that. Let's think in $100,000 increments, not $10,000 increments. And so that was really interesting to me in a way that young people are learning too early to contort and to make their desires small. Mm. And adults have been doing it for a really long time too. Yeah. That is the dominant culture, right? In this podcast, we talk about two ways of being in the world, two views of the world, one that's grounded in scarcity and grounded in sort of ways of being that are often about efficiency and effectiveness, as opposed to an abundance mindset that is about making things bigger. And it's not a pitting of one group against another that actually there's enough for everyone to be brilliant and to excel. And it is hard because we live in a culture that every single day starting before school, but certainly reinforced for most people inside of a school, right? That, that that is the way the world is. Now, I know that the second iteration of the Learning Lab involved reimagining education. What were some of the ideas that came out of that work? And how has that kind of informed how the Haas Fund is thinking about the vision of education that you want to provide all young people? And so what's that future-facing vision? Oh my gosh, I'm so glad that you're asking me this question because the theme that came out of those reimagining education was all about cultivating joy for girls of color. Mm. And the grants that came out of that lab and all of the connections that came out of that lab were about paying young women for their labor, for leading equity projects in their school districts, and continuing to advocate for policies that made their student lives better. Hmm. Outside of the lab, at least three of the Endeavor Fund grantees are all focused on that youthful, joyful lives for young people of color that respect them by paying them for their time, that again are taking their cues from young people as they create their programmatic agenda. Like everything in those organizations are designed for and with young people. So Mm. we took that call about the joy for girls of color very seriously. And that theme runs across the Endeavor Fund work. And spoiler alert, you're going to see this joy theme in other aspects of the Walter and Elise Haas Fund's work in the future. 
Oh, I love that. I love that. And then I've heard you talk about this, and I'm curious if this is also part of the reimagining education, this idea that we artificially stick young people into these boxes called schools and assume that is where you learn what you need to learn to be in life and to be in community. So is part of the reimagining also trying to think differently about how we, Karen Pittman and others might talk about how we create context for thriving, both inside and outside school? Is that part of the work as well when it comes to education? Yes. So the answer to that question or the way the Walter and Elise Haas Fund is approaching that question or that idea is through supporting linked learning in our public schools in San Francisco and Oakland, which is essentially the idea is that learning is more interesting and more relevant if it is contextualized through the professions, through real life work. And I have been a proponent of linked learning and I'm glad that we're supporting it because in the Bay Area, the the gaps, the income gaps, the wealth gaps between families of color, between affluent families and poor families, like it's huge. And yet we are the home of tech innovation and we are home to numerous corporations and the on-ramps to that prosperity, the on-ramps to those organizations are unclear, particularly in the conventional educational models. And linked learning provides an opportunity to create those on-ramps really early through linked learning. Young people are doing internships and externships. They are learning not only from their classroom teachers, but from professionals in the field who come to the classroom and they go out into the field and get to learn from the professionals in their communities every day, contextualizing learning in a way that is motivating and relevant, I think is important, but also taking down the walls of the school or at least making the walls more porous where the community is coming into the schools and teachers and young people are coming out of the school that's also really good for our communities. It's good for education, but it's good for communities. It's good for building social capital as a young person, as a teacher, as a professional in the community. It's good for building bridges across divides and doing something to address polarization. Like It's hard to dislike people when you've seen them up close and personal and you've had relationships with them. And I think linked learning has a lot of potential. But Jamie, I so appreciate this conversation. I appreciate you taking so much time out of what I know is a busy day and life. And it was great to get to know you and excited to keep up with what the Walter and Elise Haas Fund continues to do under your leadership. So thank you so much. Thank you for giving me an opportunity to share our work. Thanks for listening. The Future of Smart Podcast is a project of Grantmakers for Education and is made possible through the support of our generous member sponsors. If you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe and follow us on social media. You can find links to resources related to today's episode in the show notes. More episodes and events can be found at edfunders.org. To learn more about the future of smart, visit ulca.com, U-L-C-C-A.com.